So, um, <clears throat> so last week, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was coming back this week um, uh, for part two of, <laughs> of this lecture. Um, and um, so I talked about the paramis. So this is paramis as a teaching, um, uh, not so much uh, developed in the early teachings, um, but later brought out in the the later schools of Buddhism, Mahayana schools. Um, um, and it's a teaching about the cultivation of uh, qualities of awakening. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, and I'll just, I'll repeat a couple of things from last week. So, as the mythology goes, when the Buddha-to-be was in one of his former lives and um, uh, met some previous Buddha, and was so inspired by the magnificent qualities that this Buddha generated and emanated that he decided to uh, dedicate uh, his life and all future lives to developing uh, the qualities of a Buddha, which uh, takes apparently an incalculable, incalculable amount of time. And he reflected on various qualities that were necessary for that awakening. So last week, uh, we talked about the qualities of generosity, of patience, of letting go, of equanimity, and something else that I can't remember. Who was here? What else? This is your test. Wisdom. Thank you. Somebody was paying attention. I like that. It's good. So, and I thought it was really perfect that we had an election cycle uh, last week so we could practice patience and uh, equanimity and for some of you a lot of letting go. <laughs> so I wondered how you did with the, the cultivation of the paramis <laughs> during the Giants win and the elections and all kinds of other things. So um, what I like about this teaching is that it's really, it's, it's both uh, qualities that we have innately within us. None of these qualities are foreign to us. We all have the capacity for equanimity. We have the capacity for wisdom. We have the capacity for letting go, sometimes, uh, generosity, and so on. And there are also qualities we develop both in our practice, in our formal practice, in our meditation practice. And there are also qualities we can develop very consciously in the midst of our daily lives. And we do conscious them, do, do practice them and cultivate them. And some of you have probably spent a lot of your lives cultivating these qualities and not necessarily knowing it or not necessarily having it in the schema uh, that, this, that this, is, this teaching is in. So, um, so hopefully I'll get through the, the, uh, the rest of the paramis because I'm not going to be back here for a while. So um, this is another whistle-stop tour through the teachings of the paramis. So there's the sixth quality I want to talk about is truthfulness. And of all the qualities the, the Buddha was said to have developed in all these lives um, leading up to his awakening, uh, the one thing that he uh, never did in all of his millions of lifetimes uh, was um, tell a lie. That was, that was the one thing that he was able to stay steady with. Uh, just like with all of our practice, we have an intention, and then we fall off the rails, and we, we, we come back, and then we forget, and we come back. But truthfulness was the one that he uh, most uh, seemingly dedicatedly practiced. So how many of us could also say that we've never ever said anything untruthful in our lives? Anybody like to raise a hand? Anybody dare raise the first stone? So one of my favorite lines about truth is from Keats, the poet, English poet, romantic poet, who said, truth is beauty, beauty, truth. Truth is beauty, beauty, truth. That is all you know and all you need to know. Truth is beauty. What would it be like if our culture valued truth as beauty and beauty truth? If we really valued, you know, it feels like we're living in a culture where truth is not valued anymore. That we can't look to leaders or politicians or media or many sources of information for truth. The internet. And I think there's something greatly lost in that. And just to imagine what it's like to be, to, if it, to, what would it be like to be in a culture where truthfulness was valued 
or when you're around people who speak the truth and who, who you know embody the truth. What the, what's that like to be around that quality? It's a very beautiful thing. There's a certain sense of trust. What is it? What is it? What is truth? What is truth? That, that's a very good question. What is truth? Well, I've got this, this hardcore questions from the front here. <laughs> what is truth? I'm going to come back to that one. <laughs> Hmm. What is truth? I'm going to keep passing on that one. <laughs> you know, it's a hard thing to answer what is truth. Truth is many things, and it's also relative, and there's relative truth, there's absolute truth. But we, what we can know you know, we, what we have, to, we have to rely on is our own direct experience to know the truth. And we, we can rely on that to, um, to be the, the basis for how we express truth. And, um, you know, we do the best we can. Sometimes we may speak untruth because we're unconscious. So, but what's interesting is that we all, we have within, we have built within us a sense of conscience and the sense of knowing when we're living in the truth and when we're living out of alignment with the truth. And this is something I think grows as we practice, is this sense of this, um, <clears throat> this barometer for when we, uh, when we, when, when we're not living in alignment with our own truth, with the Dharma, with the way things are. And so, as I mentioned last week, that reality has a really good way of telling us when we're not in alignment with the truth. Because what happens? We suffer. It's painful. When we're not in touch with the truth or we're living out of alignment with the truth, out of harmony with what is, we suffer. It's painful. Whether we speak that or whether we're living that. There's a poem from somebody, Derek Walcott, no, somebody else, David White, called Sweet Darkness, where part of the poem he says, you must learn one thing the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness in the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. So this is, that's a poem about truth in my eyes. To, to listen to what brings you alive, to listen what brings you in alignment with the truth. So, um, <clears throat> and one of the things about coming into alignment with truth is we also, we first have to be honest about what we don't know. To be truthful about what we don't know and to be humble about what we don't know. And most, mostly, we don't know much about anything. And the more we practice and develop and mature and grow wiser, the less and less we know from one perspective. You know, so practice, you know, just in, in the Zen teaching, the, the teachings of, of don't know mind, of not knowing, is highly valued. What do we really know for sure? What can we count on? So this is something Artie Lang wrote about truth, or not knowing, or pretending to know, which I like a lot. He says, there is something I don't know that I'm supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, yet I'm supposed to know, and I feel, and I, feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. <laughs> Therefore, I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking, since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. <laughs> Ever feel like that? You walk through life pretending, because we're supposed to know, right? If we're supposed to know something, especially at work, or if you're giving a Dharma talk and you're supposed to know about truth or something, I don't know. <laughs> I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so I'll tell you everything. You'll have to tell me everything. So, um, 
So what would it mean to be radically honest? There's a wonderful book called Radical Honesty that implores us to be radically honest. Not radically honest in a way that can be harmful, because that's not something the Buddha talked about being truthful and useful, speaking what's truthful and useful. So we know a lot about a lot of different things and a lot of, we know a lot about different people. It's not necessarily so skillful or wise or kind to say all the things that we know about somebody. So truthful and useful is a really good balance here. So, um, if only our media would be such, if only our media spoke the truth. Wasn't there a movie about that recently, where the media, where the, when, where the, the, the world couldn't tell lies? What was that called? Anybody saw that? The Invention of Lying. And the ads were really boring, because they didn't make anything up. <laughs> they just said, this is what this is, and there was no fancy, you know, car ads driving through the Grand Canyon. It was just, this is a car, <laughs> and it goes 70 miles an hour, and it's very boring. Enlightened smoothies you can get from Jamba Juice. I just picked up a leaflet. Enlightened smoothies. It's amazing what they try to sell us on things. You know, we'll get more enlightened if we eat, drink more strawberry juice. This is from the far side, from Gary Larson. So there's a bunch of cows in the field, merrily eating grass. And then one of them is looking up in disgust and going, hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. Coming to alignment with the truth. Sometimes we have to wake up to the obvious in life. So and I was thinking about this idea of truthfulness in, in politics. You know, and we're living in this era of doublespeak, where politicians basically say the opposite of what they're actually going to do. Like, we're going to... Um, hmm. We're going to lower your taxes, or we're going, to, um, we're going to really support education by slashing the education budget. We're going to tell you that piece, but... Um, so it's hard to know what to trust, and it's a great loss for, for everybody. So practice is, is encouraging us to be in alignment, to see what's true, to know what's true, through a direct experience mindful attention, and to live in accord with that, live in alignment with that. So I think it's always a useful reflection to think about where in our lives don't feel fully in alignment with the truth. Maybe April 15th doesn't feel so alignment with the truth. That's tax season for anybody that can't remember. <laughs> or how much of the press, of your own press release do you believe that really actually isn't so accurate? So it can be really interesting practice to commit. What would it be to commit to not saying an untruth in your relationships, in your work life, about yourself? So there's the parami of morality, which is really related to truthfulness, the practice of restraint, the practice of non-harming, so I think of morality and ethics from a Buddhist perspective coming out of wisdom, not coming out of um, uh, restraint for restraint's sake, but really to understand how deeply intertwined and interconnected our lives are. And that out of that understanding, how intimately we're connected, how vulnerable and fragile our lives are as human beings, that if we really live and breathe that, we wouldn't want to harm anybody. We wouldn't want to be harsh, we wouldn't want to be violent, we wouldn't want to steal, we wouldn't want to sexually harm, we wouldn't want to do anything either to ourselves, to our own body, to somebody else, the earth. So, so I know sometimes when I hear the word morality, there's something inside me shudders because of the conditioning I experienced about um, uh, through my, 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 my growing up in the Christian uh, culture and school where um, 
uh, it felt like the, the impetus to be moral came from, from guilt and shame rather than from a natural desire, really is an expression of love. I think of, the, oh, I think of all the paramis as expressions of love. And morality is one of those, that we feel our connection, we feel our love of the earth, and so we don't want to harm the earth. We don't want to live in a way that's out of alignment, that's, that's doing more, any more damage than, than is necessary, minimizing our impact. So I remember when I was a kid, I used to, um, partly for fun, partly to save money, because I didn't have much money growing up, um, where I used to always jump the trains, and uh, I used to go to... <coughs> up to the Newcastle, which was the big town. I grew up in northern England. And um, it was pretty easy to jump the turnstiles, and, and then you'd have to dodge the uh, inspectors when they came, and there's all kinds of strategies. And, um, and I noticed that it was, at some point I stopped doing it because I realized how stressful it was. You know, I'd save like, you know, 5p, 5 pence, which was, I don't know, 10 cents or something. And... Um, you know, there was some way that I was stealing, in a way. And, and there was just a natural, again, this comes back to this natural, innate sense of guidance or conscience that we know when we're out of alignment. <coughs> at times it was fun, at times it was exciting, but mostly I, I could feel it was out of alignment. And at some point I stopped doing it because it was actually painful. It was reality's way of saying, this isn't in alignment, just pay your fare and enjoy the train ride. So I find that a good metaphor for when we, when we bend our commitment to our own ethical standards, we feel it. We feel some lack of integrity, we feel, and we feel it viscerally. We feel it in our conscience. We feel it one of the reasons why the Buddha talked about ethics prior, to, and he talked about generosity prior to teaching about meditation, was we need that basis of integrity to feel a sense of goodness and well-being as we practice. Otherwise, when we come to practice, what do we feel? We feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel out of alignment. We feel unwholesome in some way. So try telling a lie and then go to meditate. What's that like? I mean, I'm not saying you do that, but you know, if you, if you have in the past... You know, you, there's, you know you, you, there's a reverberation. There's suffering in here and there's suffering out there. So the Buddha talked about the five ethical guidelines, which are really simple guidelines, which I found really helpful to not harm any living being, not kill any living being. I don't go around killing too many living beings, but the, the admonition is, the, the principle is that life is the most valuable thing to life. So even including a flea or an ant or a spider or a potato bug or a moth or whatever we find inconvenient in our lives, in our kitchen, in our bathroom, in our bed, in our pants, Wherever the bugs, I do a lot of meditation outside, so with a lot of things creep up, you know. And um, I'm getting itchy just thinking about it. <laughs> what would it be to not to not harm anything, including these little beings? There's a woman. There was a story of a woman on retreat who used to who had a almost phobia with uh, flies and and insects, and and she would. And routinely kill them on, on sight. And she was sitting in meditation up the hill some years ago, and there were flies and you know, various things. And, and she found whenever they landed, she, 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 her heart had so awakened, it so opened up, that she, she could no longer swat the mosquitoes and the flies that would land on her. There was a sense of, oh, this is a living being, this is life, this is beautiful. And so it's a, it's a metaphor for how we can bring that quality of care to everybody's life, every, everything in this world. I remember when I used to practice at IMS, the Sister Center to Spirit Rock in Massachusetts, and um, uh, we'd practice in the winter, so I'd do the three-month retreat, which is about this time of year. It's in the middle of the retreat right now. And when I was practicing, they had a lot of cockroaches, 
And being a Buddhist center, they didn't kill the cockroaches because that was you know, violating the precepts. So we you know, wished them loving kindness and hoped that they go out into the snow and you know, meditate them away. And they got psychics in and all kinds of things to try and you know, lead them into the forest. They were the most loved cockroaches I'd ever seen. They were just positively basking all this loving kindness, which is also apparently. So um, another parami is the parami of energy, of virya, which is, which is energy in pursuit of the Dhamma, and energy in pursuit of truth, energy in pursuit of your practice, energy in pursuit of awakening. So if you haven't noticed already, it takes a lot of energy and effort to practice, even just to sit and follow your breath for 40 minutes, right? It takes some energy. Half of you were dozing off, I noticed, but um, <laughs> you've had a long day, so it's okay. But um, it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of energy to get up in the morning when it's cold and go sit on your cushion. Yeah? It takes a lot of energy to bring your mind back from its trance of hypnotic, you know, whatever it is into in, 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 in the thinking realm. Yeah? takes a lot of practice to bring these qualities into being, to practice restraint, for instance, to practice truthfulness. It takes a lot of care, a lot of attention. But it's a beautiful thing when we do that, and it's actually energizing when we do that. So it's interesting to reflect on what brings us energy to practice. Like all of you had a sufficient amount of energy to schlep all the way to Spirit Rock tonight, right? There was some motivation, some intention, some, some inspiration, right? For driving half an hour, an hour in traffic in the dark, right? So there's some energy in pursuit of your own practice, right? Unless, unless you're just here for the cookies or the, you know, the pot, pot, pot thing, the soup thing, when the pot, whatever those things are, pot, pot stickers. It wasn't pot. It wasn't pot in the soup. We didn't put pot in the soup. <laughs> At least I don't think we did. I don't know. So, so to, to think, to ask yourself, what motivates you in your practice? What motivated you to come here? You know, to sit in community, to hear the Dharma teachings, to be inspired for your practice. It's a beautiful thing. It's really important. I think it's the most important thing. I mean, one of the most, but one of the most important things is to keep reflecting what inspires you about your practice. Because if there's no inspiration, you won't do, you won't do anything. Right? To get up in the morning, to do retreats, to practice, to bring these qualities into being, we need to know why we're doing it. Otherwise, it's just easy to watch a movie. So, uh, Sultra Malioni, who's a beautiful teacher, teaches here sometimes in women's retreats and uh, in Tibetan tradition. Her partner died quite suddenly, um, some months ago, and she decided to uh, take a year off from teaching and anything, and she just went into retreat. That was the motivation for her practice, and death and our fragility and impermanence is one of those motivations that can wake us up. So there's all these great stories from the tradition of meditators and uh, folks um, doing very arduous things for their practice. One of my favorite stories is this wonderful Tibetan Lama called Shabkar, Shabkar Rinpoche. And um, he would go with a bunch of uh, yogins um, uh, to this island to practice. And so they would cross the, uh, the, the, the water, the lake, whatever it was. You know, it, was, it, was, it was an island on a lake. So they crossed the lake in winter when it was frozen. They'd take a bag of barley and their practice implements. And then, of course, when spring and summer came, the, the lake would melt, uh, the, lake, the, the ice would melt, and so they were stuck on the island. So all, they had to do, so all they could do was practice. There was no escape. They put practice year-round on this island because they couldn't get off. And I just love that, that image of that, that tremendous dedication. Which, you know, how, how many of us are going to schlep over to some island, you know, to, I don't know, Angel Island or something with a sack of barley flour for six months? Well, you don't have to do that. But what I like about it is that is that idea of, of committing yourself to practice in some way. 
So there's a parami of energy, there's the parami of determination. Determination it takes to wake up. It takes persistence, not only energy, but persistence, a certain dedication, a certain uh, moving with life's ebb and flows. Because it's not, you know, there's this image of, you know, spiritual life and meditation and that sort of things get better and better. You know, it's on this uphill trajectory of light and love and, you know, universal consciousness. Well, it's not my experience. Is it yours? No, it's up and down. It's like life. You know, it's beautiful sometimes, blissful sometimes. We feel connected with love, our hearts and all beings. And the next moment, you know, we're grumbling because our neighbor's dog's barking too loudly. And should we call the police or not? And so we move through life with expansion and contraction. And that's sometimes very challenging to meet that constant ebb and flow. It takes a lot of persistence to, to show up and be with your mind in meditation. Don't you wish you could trade it in for somebody else's sometimes? And just that crazy, busy, restless, agitated, longing, empty, seeking mind. Yeah, it takes, it takes practice. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the diamond approach work. He's a teacher in that school, and we were talking about working with the inner critic. And he says, yeah, I think, I think for most people it takes a good 10 years to really get a grip with the inner critic. It's like, yeah, maybe you're right. That's a lot of persistence. That's a lot of dedication. I think back at my practice, you know, I've been meditating for 25 years. It's taken a while to train my mind, you know. Takes a lot of dedication. So I like to read this um, this story that some of you know, the autobiography in five short chapters, which is a great metaphor for our lives and the persistence that's needed. So chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. <laughs> Pretending, Audi Lang. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. Does it sound like our lives, very familiar? There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. <laughs> my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. It's getting really old, right? There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down a different street. <laughs> so it, you know, it's slow. There's a hole, we fall in. Oh, duh, there's a hole, right. There's a hole, I'm going to pretend it's not really there. We fall in. There's some unconscious habit. And then, where there is, you know, then we start getting mindful. We start seeing these habits. Oh, God, I'm still doing it. I'm still got the pint of ice cream you know, at midnight. You know, I, I can't believe I'm still doing this. I did this last night. Oh, yeah, I'll eat it mindfully. Mm, tasting, tasting, pleasant, pleasant. Mm, yes, very good, very good. Feeling sick, feeling sick, nausea, nausea, self-hate, self-hate, rejection, rejection. And slowly, you know, by chapter four, you know, there's, there's the pint of, in the, we could do this about, there's a, there's a, chapter one, there's a pint of ice cream in the ice, <laughs> in the fridge, chapter two. Chapter four, we see it, we go, oh, I'm going to be sick if I eat that. And besides, I'm not really longing for ice cream, I'm just lonely. I'm just sad. <laughs> so we walk down a different street, we learn, we wake up slowly, it takes persistence. And chapter six, for the activists in the room, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fill it in. <laughs> and the Buddha's in the room, chapter seven, there's a, deep hole in, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I see it there, I leave it there, because people need to learn their lesson. <laughs> we could just have lots of chapters, it just keeps going on. That's the tantric path. Anyhow, so... Um, so Sharon Salzberg tells a story of a friend of hers, um, a student of hers she's been working with for some time on the meta practice, the loving kindness practice, which is also one of the paramis. And um, so he's recounting to her his practice, and he says, you know, I've been doing this meta practice for, you know, three, four, five years, you know, and it's just, 
just, you know, boring and I just, you know, keep slogging away at it and, you know, you know, it's, it's just hard. It's like, you know, you know, why do it? And she said, well, is it having any impact in your life? And, she, and he said, well, you know, I mean, people say that I'm kinder and I'm, I'm definitely more patient at work and my kids have noticed that I'm a little softer and sweeter and, and my wife's actually appreciating how warm I am now. And he said, but is that enough? Is that enough? You know? So is that enough? Where do we look to for the fruits of our practice? And sometimes in the practice, we, every, we get up every day and our mind's crazy and distracted and busy and restless. But we notice in the day there's more presence, there's more clarity, there's a little more patience, there's a little more equanimity, there's a little more space before we react. And we go, oh, maybe this persistence is paying off. may not be immediate, but we see over time when we look back, we see, oh, this practice really makes a difference. So when I think about the, the, the quality of persistence, to think about the things that you do in your lives that you've, you've already developed this quality. Maybe in your work, maybe you've stuck at your career, you know, whether it's being a therapist or being an educator or being you know, whatever you do, a gardener, a cook, and you've really developed some excellence and you've had to persist and, and really have some dedication and develop this quality. Or if you're a parent, Parents probably the thing that requires the most dedication and persistence right, for years and years. So, to, so I like to re- I like it's important to reflect on how some of these qualities are already developed within us that we can bring. It's like yeah, I know how to be dedicated. I know how to be persistent. I know how to be focused. I've done this with my children for twenty nine years. So here we are in this in the supermarket. Two more aisles, it's called. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket, in her trolley thing with cart. As we call them trolleys in England. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we have just half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. Surprise, surprise. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with your little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, What do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) So sometimes we have to be patient. (laughs) There, there. Only two more aisles. <laughs> so next time you see a parent in the supermarket supposedly soothing their child, <laughs> it might be them. It wouldn't be a bad thing to do. So here's another story um, that I love about the quality of dedication. Um, it's about an acorn planter. In the 1930s, a young traveler was exploring the French Alps. He came upon a vast stretch of barren land. It was desolate, it was forbidding, it was ugly. It was the kind of place you hurry away from. Then suddenly the young traveler stopped dead in his tracks. In the middle of this vast wasteland was a bent over old man. On his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four foot length of pipe, iron pipe. The man was using the iron pipe to punch holes in the ground. Then from the sack he would take an acorn and put it in the hole. Later, the old man told the traveler, I planted over 100,000 acorns. Perhaps only a tenth of them will grow. He later found out the old man's wife and son had died, and this was how he chose to spend his final years. I want to do something useful with them, he said. Twenty-five years later, the now not-as-young traveler returned to the same desolate area. What he saw amazed him. He could not believe his own eyes. 
The land was covered with a beautiful forest two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and wild flowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that once was. A beautiful oak forest stood there now, all because somebody cared, and all because somebody was persistent, was dedicated. You know, 100,000 holes and 100,000 acorns, such a beautiful story. So, um, you know, partly what I take from this is sometimes the things that we do through our dedication and persistence are often very, very, very small and very seemingly insignificant in the moment. And yet they can, they can flower, they can bloom into forests uh, of various kinds in our lives, in other people's lives. So the last parami, and the parami that I think really, you know, all these paramis interweave, they're not separate, so dedication is connected to energy and it's connected to equanimity and uh, so the last parami is the parami of metta, the parami of loving kindness, friendliness, love. And I think of the paramis as really being um, uh, all the paramis being expression of love in some form or other. Expression of love for ourselves and expression of love for others. So the poet Hafez writes, we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. We are people who need to love. It's essential to our human makeup because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. And we know that when we are touched by love, when we're feeling love for ourselves, for another, for life, for a moment, for child. So, um, so there's lots of tales about the Buddha developing these qualities. Um, and there's a well-known story of the Buddha developing uh, uh, the, the parami of love. Um, in, in one, and so often he takes the form of an animal in a past life as a uh, in this sort of metaphorical um, uh, can't think of the word, mystical realm. And um, so he's at this particular story, he's, he's taken birth as uh, king of a particular uh, uh, group of deer uh, in the forest, where, in, in a land where the, where the king is particularly uh, voracious about hunting and killing, and he uh, goes out and hunts uh, a deer a day. And um, rather than terrorize, rather than have the whole deer population be terrorized, that they decide amongst themselves that they would offer one of their, one of their brethren up for the king's um, uh, slaughter every day, and so they would sort of pick, you know, you know, in there with their deer hooves, they would pick out of a, the hat um, the the short matchstick, and um, and one day there was a, a, a deer that was. Um, picked to uh, be given up, uh, her life to be given up, and she was pregnant. And so she, she went to uh, the Buddha-to-be, who was the king of the deer, and, he, and she said, you know, please, I want to honor this commitment that we all have to uh, offering ourselves up, but at first I want to give birth to my, to my young one, and then, and then I'll offer myself up. And so the Buddha said, well, I'll, I'll go in your place. And one of the rules that the king had laid with the, when they'd made this agreement with the deer was that the, the, the king would be spared from this offering, from off, having to offer his life up. But the Buddha, in his kindness and love, decided to offer his his own body up in sake of this um, sake of this pregnant deer. And so, when the the the, the Buddha in, a, in the deer form puts his head on the chopping block and the the the, the, the king's uh, retinue realizes that this is the king of the deer. Um, they go summon the king, and the king comes down, and they have a discussion, and the Buddha, being the Buddha, can talk as a deer, and so they have a chat, and, um, and uh, the, the king's asking, why are you giving yourself up? You know, I've, I've given you freedom. I've given you a life of freedom so you can you know, be free to roam. And, and he said you know, that my heart is calling you know, to, to, to offer myself because of the, how deeply I feel for my 
from my brethren. And so the king, seeing that, was so moved that he let the Buddha-to-be go and decreed that all the deer from that day on would be safe, and they named a park called Deer Park after, you know, in his honor, which was a place where the Buddha ended up practicing. Anyhow, um, where does that, what does that have to do with us? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> It shows, it's, it's, so it's, it's uh, <laughs> I, when you read these stories in their original form, they're very, they're very touching, and they, they just speak to the, the power of the heart, the human heart, and what, what it's capable of, the sacrifice, the love, the depth. And we all have this capacity within us. This parami of love, of metta, is not something that's alien to you. We might lose touch with it, we might forget about it, we might suppress it, we might lose touch with it in our pursuit of other things, distractions, money, fame, something else. We seek it outside of ourselves, but always to remember that it's within us. As Gary Larson reminds us in The Far Side, who has this cartoon of um, uh, Satan in hell. Where else would Satan be? And... Um, He's, uh, sh- he's just coming out of the fiery den, and he's shouting to his mother, no, mom, no, no. And, uh, and underneath this little picture, um, it says, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's there with a little tray and a little apron, you know, a little tail sticking out and horns, and this fresh new recruits into hell, and cookies and milk. So, you know, we have that. With this, this, this is the natural impulse of the heart. You know, when someone's hurting, if our heart's open, we know we'll, we'll, reach, we'll move forward, we'll, we'll extend a hand, we'll make a phone call, we'll console a young one, we'll, you know, we'll, we, do what's, we do what's natural. It doesn't take a lot of thinking, hmm, this child's crying, hmm, what shall I do? Hmm, that's very interesting. Hmm, tears are flowing down the cheek. No, we just, you know, you just, that's what you do. We know it's instinctual, for the most part, unless it's you know been traumatized, and that's another story. So, um, how about a poem? So, this is a poem I wrote called "Descent into Love," and um, it came out of some reflection on uh, how. Uh, you know, as I talked about the ebbs and the flows and the ups and downs of our lives, when we inevitably hit those times that are difficult and dark and painful, where we experience loss or sadness or grief or all of it, uh, how those places are often the, the, the cauldron of the heart, the, the place that we really get tenderized and where the heart begins to uh, fully emerge into its fullness and beauty. Who would have known that burrowing into your own dark shadow, down into inner dungeons that hide their forbidding secrets and sore and tender memories that you've spent a lifetime avoiding and running from, would be the very passageway that begins with a crack, a hairline splinter in the rock that lets in a glimmer of light that leads upwards, but also inwards into the soft fleshy room of your heart and begins to soften that house that has been vacant for years, filling it with a sweetness and unimaginable openness, where the hard boundaries that separated you for so long from the rigid edges of your world became porous, almost dissolved, and your skin becomes thin and feels every impression of this harsh and welcoming life. And you come to know the other like your own, and that's where it begins. The love you've waited for starts moving like the breath, no longer making distinction between inside and outside. And that's when you can't help but fall in love with everything. (laughs) I say, it's a riveting talk. Someone's fallen asleep. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, the deep, you know, wisdom just permeates that, you know, alpha waves or the whatever the waves are happening in deep sleep. So where was I in love and sleepiness and 
So one of the things I like to talk about in the context of love is to uh, understand the relationship between, the, between love and awareness, love and mindfulness. That as we're practicing this cultivation of presence of awareness, that it's really the cultivation of love. That really if our presence, if our mindfulness practice, if our awareness practice is not imbued with heart, with kindness, with compassion, I would say it's not complete, it's not in its fullness. Because for anything to grow, for anything to emerge, anything to flower, just like in soil, we, we tend to the soil, to, you know, we, we create the conditions for something to emerge. It's the same thing with our, with our awareness, with our presence, with our mindfulness practice, that it ultimately needs to be imbued, and if not synonymous and fused with a kind, loving presence. This is from the sixth Zen patriarch, who says, Do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Awareness is the foundation of empathy, as is being now researched a lot. Attention is what is the, is the most... Uh, formative base of empathy. When we have awareness, we have self-awareness, we have some sense of what's happening over there. Without awareness, we're clueless. We're clueless here and we're clueless over there. The heart doesn't move. So one of my favorite lines from Joanna Macy, who's a wonderful uh, Buddhist teacher and activist, she says, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not something said often in these circles, I'll have you know. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention, and if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. Anything. You put your attention on it, and it reveals itself to you. So think about that for yourself. When, you, when you're present and awake, and maybe a beautiful bird lands on your windowsill, or you see a spider weaving a web, or you see some children playing in the park, or you see the way the light is so crisp after the rain from yesterday, and you find yourself falling in love and tenderness you know, for these things. That's the quality of attention. That's what Mary Oliver talks about. She says, there's nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder, and with wonder, love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. You know, if you really bring that beautiful quality of attention, the heart at some point inevitably opens, at least has that capacity. Another poem for you. This is from Billy Collins, who writes so beautifully about this. It's called Aimless Love. It's about how we trip over and fall in love with things effortlessly. This morning, as I walked along the, wake, the, along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth rising like steam from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without long silences on the telephone, no waiting or huffiness or rancor. Just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest just a little too low overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in his light brown suit. Still, my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail in a pile of leaves to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing in the bathroom sink not in the sink, at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble. <laughs> Developing apparently these inanimate things, the wonderful, anyhow, I divulge. So at home in its, pain grill, its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble. <laughs> so what is love? 
you didn't ask me that. You were going to ask me what truth is. What is love? I'm not going to answer that one either. But this is from a four-year-old. Love is when a girl puts on a perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> when someone loves you, they say, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Oh, beautiful. It's like a Mary Oliver line. She says, each name a comfortable music in the mouth. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. But this fourth grader wrote, I'm not rushing into love, I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. <laughs> so um, so the, in, in the context of the paramis, in the context of the, this teaching on metta, uh, the way the Buddha talked about metta is this, is this, is the, 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 um, uh, the, the infinite capacity of the heart is to cultivate a quality of love that's not so preferential and exclusive and um, demanding. That's a love that's it's really, it's really a generosity of the heart that gives of itself freely. That it was embodies in this phrase, I want everything for you, but I want nothing from you. I want everything for you, but I want nothing from you. So it's this quality of love that's really um, uh, uh, not exclusive to our, you know, we all have our favorite loved ones and friends and, and whatnot, but it's really this quality of open-heartedness, this deep friendship with life, deep, deep kinship, deep connection. And again, we touch into this. We touch into this non-exclusive quality of love at times. And it's also something we can develop through practice. And meta-practice is one of those things that allows us to reach out of this sense of isolated separation into a sense of connectivity. It's a quality of boundlessness, one way of putting it. There's a poem from Hafez that speaks so beautifully. He writes... um, The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Mm. The sun never says to the earth, come on, I'm giving you all this light, you know, give me a little something back, you know. So meta has this quality of, of capacity, of boundlessness, you know, but it also is very simple. It's very ordinary. It's that, it's just, and then, did anybody watch the, the John Stewart insanity rally or whatever it was called, March for Insanity or Sanity or whatever it was. And he showed this video of the, of the Beltway and um, like 10 lanes going into one or two lanes. And he was really talking about an, ex- an expression of meta that, you know, they could be Republicans and Democrats and Tea Parties, but no, oh, no, your turn, no, 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 maybe you. Yeah. And it's just this beautiful, you know, just this simple way that we have to move through life in this world and it, we would be killing each other if there wasn't a sense of kindness and friendliness being extended all the time as we let people in traffic and hold doors open and just do very civil things. So this matter is also this, this very simple, ordinary goodwill, this sense of kindness and care. As the Tao puts it, the kind-hearted as a grandmother or as Mary Oliver writes, on cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, would spread newspapers over the porch floor, so she said the garden ants could crawl beneath them as under a blanket and keep warm. <laughs> but what shall I wish for for myself but being struck so by the lightning of years to be like her with that what is left, that loving? Spreading newspapers on the porch floor so they garden ants could crawl underneath as if under a blanket. So that's just the simple ways that we, we um, do that. This is, another, this is another from a four-year-old um, who's talking about love. He says, and this, again, it speaks to this, just very sweet, ordinary kindnesses that we do for each other. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her nails anymore, toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. 
So I also like to think of metta as an attitude. It's an attitude. It's the way that we meet the world. It's the way that we orient towards ourselves, towards our experience. That's why this, in the practice, the practice is the cauldron for awareness and love because we get to practice every moment, every breath, every pain, every sadness, every restless mind. We get to, we get to practice. How do I meet this? How do I be with this? Do I hate it? Do I resist it? That's why I asked in the meditation, what are you cultivating in relationship to what's happening? Are you cultivating boredom and resistance and fed upness and irritation and, you know, grumpiness with your neighbor because they're breathing too loud and irritation with the person coughing and or are we cultivating, you know, oh, it's like this. Oh, it's hard. Oh, we're cultivating kindness or compassion or patience. It's also about how we meet our humanness. How do we meet, you know, our wacky, idiosyncratic, unlinear, unreliable, unpredictable selves, an unpredictable world. You know, we can either meet ourselves with judgment, which we're very good at. We've definitely practiced that as a parami. Or we, we, could, we could create our own different parami lists, you know, what we've been cultivating for 25, 50 years. Judgment, <laughs> aversion, resistance, desire, mm, boredom, fantasy, any others? Fear. Fear, anxiety. You know, we're masters of some of these, right? We've got a whole, you know, bag of tricks back there. So, you know, this this teaching is saying, yes, that is true, and there are other qualities you can develop that will lead to happiness and joy and freedom and peace and clarity. Choice is yours. Rumi said, pay homage to everything that has helped... Rumi, Rumi didn't say this. Rumi wrote this. If God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms... There would not be one experience, not one thought or feeling or act that I would not bow to. So how many things in ourselves do we not bow to? Do we judge and reject? So every moment, every day, every thing that we do, we, we, have, we, we have the opportunity to practice developing these qualities in relationship, with ourselves, at work, in our lives, with our children, with our parents. Catherine Hepburn once wrote, love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only what you're expecting to give, which is everything. I think that's a beautiful summary of this parami. Love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only what you're expecting to give, which is everything. And another way of looking at this, I'm sort of, I have a lot more to say on this theme of love and awareness, but I'm running out of time. Um, one is a line from Rumi where he says, Your task, so the, 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 where he's speaking to, um, you know, we look to the cultivation of the quality and we look to what gets in the way. So he says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. It's a really interesting place to reflect. Where, do you, where are the barriers and resistances that we've blocked and erected in defense of love? Because also love touches all the pain we have around love and the losses and the regrets and the betrayals and the abandonments. So, on that note, on that note, I'm going to read you with, leave you with something. One last poem from Anna Akhmatova who's speaking to the, um, to the quality of love that's not just present within us, but also is present all around us, and how 
the universe and life and nature is beckoning us to open our hearts to realize it. She writes, everything is plundered and betrayed and sold. Death's great black wings scrape the air. Misery gnaws to the bone, but why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow blossoms into town. Sorry, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined dirty houses that something not known to anyone at all but wild in our beast for centuries. At night the cherries blow summer into town and the miraculous comes so close to the ruined dirty houses, so to the ruined dirty house, to the difficult, messy pain of our lives, the miraculous, the mystery, the sacred love, whatever you call it, is always a breath away or closer than our own breath. So, um, so reflect on these paramis. You know, it, what I suggest to people uh, is, is, you, is you reflect on one. You take one, you take on as a practice. Okay, what would I like to develop this one? Maybe patience. Maybe equanimity. Maybe love. And you just bring it to mind in your meditation, in your, as you go about your day. Call it forth, see where it naturally rises, see where it's blocked, see where it can be cultivated. So, thank you for your attention. Very nice to be here. I won't be back teaching this class until uh, the beginning of next year. So, uh, those of you who just come here, have a nice rest of the year. Have a nice trip. (laughs) Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.